0: Thank you for tapping into this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. And before you forget, the Earth is trapping more and more heat. Something I've been noticing over the past few years, which became very apparent with the catastrophic Australian wildfires, where over a billion animals died, is that our narrative around climate change seems to be fixated on only singular grand events. Seeing the sky in eerie shade of orange and the streets of Sydney covered in smoke looked startling and reminiscent of a scene from an apocalyptic movie. We collectively all became shook, and the stories and images flooded all the many channels of media. Corporate news, social media, hell, it even came into our day-in-day life. Then it was followed by massive wildfires in the U.S., where the same effect of blocking out the sky happened, and even more startling, the east coast of the states were getting poorer air quality and grayer skies from what was happening thousands of miles away. How long did that stay in our collective narrative, though? Fast forward to now, where we've had many more startling events, from a heat dome that killed at least a billion marine animals on the west coast, and more wildfires and the Colorado River officially, and rather late, getting called into drought conditions. Yet, as far as it looks from the hammock I'm watching it all from, that we only tend to keep our narrative fixed on whatever is the most shocking event at the moment. It's important to take time to let the realities breathe. Take in the event that occurred and understand what the trend left unhinged goes. And what are the possible options to push towards better outcomes? Part of that brings in the importance of scientists and people who sift through all the available information and point out what is occurring. One piece of this information came out this summer. Well, my guest, Dr. Loeb, published data he's been working on, showing that the Earth is trapping far more heat at a faster rate over the past two decades than previously known. This has to do with a whole lot of factors. Some as minuscule in thinking, but grand at the margins of time. In this episode, NASA scientist Dr. Loeb spends time explaining the means and mechanisms scientists have to understand climate data, and what he's been working on, and what this means for our planet in the coming century. It's fascinating getting to hear what's going on with our climate systems from those who spend the majority of their days combing over it in ways that far outstrip us average consumers. Well, with no further ado, my interview with Dr. Norman Loeb Real quick before the episode starts, if you'd like to listen to us on your streaming platform of choice, donate to the show, sign up for our mailing list, visit us at bandwidthpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, follow, comment, or subscribe to the pod from wherever you're listening. Enjoy! much for your time. I appreciate you taking your time uh, to speak with me today about our shifting climatic patterns and what's going on with the Earth today. Um, so Dr. Loeb, if you wouldn't mind, just introduce yourself. I'm going to ask a question as like a baseline uh, question that's unrelated to anything else, and then we'll get, to, we'll get going.
1: Okay, so my name is Norman Loeb. Um, I work at uh, the NASA Langley Research Center. I'm a climate scientist. I lead a project satellite project called clouds and the earth's radiant energy system series um, and it is essentially measuring how much of the uh, sun's energy is reflected back to space and how much thermal emission the earth emits to space
0: okay yeah that is all very fascinating it's uh, like the new rocket science almost Um, So I want to ask this question to everyone when they're the first time guests to just kind of get more to our shared humanity. Um, So I want to ask you, what do you like to do that makes you happy? Um, Well,
1: I like sports. I like playing. There's a sport that I play that I uh, played when I was in my 20s and then stopped and then picked it up again many, many years later. It's a squash. It's a racket sport. And I enjoy that. My body doesn't always work so well with that. I'm getting a little older. So um, it's been a bit of a problem. Injuries uh, <laughs> seem to happen more easily than they did when in my 20s. And then during this COVID period, um, because I'm not traveling, um, I have more time, off time after work, um, I picked up a new pa- another passion that I had in my 20s was to pick up... Uh, I'm where I left off 25 or 30 years ago playing uh, guitar, jazz guitar, so that was my mission to, to learn <laughs> jazz guitar, and I think I'll probably keep that one for the rest of my life. There's just so much to learn, so many chords, and it's fascinating. That's so fun. So those are two things anyway that, I, that make me happy.
0: Oh, well, we're going to get along just fine. Yeah, I, I've actually been playing jazz guitar for like 20 years. Uh, that's oh, like really? The, yeah, yeah. that's the longest thing I've ever done in my life, actually. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right on. And uh, yoga, lots and lots of yoga. I'm actually recovering from a shoulder uh, tear uh, from uh, overexercising myself. So oh, I know yeah. how those injuries nag. So lots of yoga. Uh, someone told me once, you'll never die and think, uh, oh, man, I wish I would have done less yoga. And I've really been thinking yeah. about that a lot. Well, excellent. Um, I'm glad you're able to take some time, especially make the best out of COVID and our uh, shared quarantine, I suppose. Um, So I was perusing the internet and um, there's a lot of topics like most namely the Anthropocene um, that I've talked about before in the podcast. And it's kind of a reoccurring uh, research area and and topic of talking with guests. Um, So as a part of that, I have all of these like uh, scrapers that are scraping the news and kind of like send me interesting things with some uh, processing of it that pops up. One of them that was like around the middle of June that was going everywhere, um, which you were quoted in, was talking about that the amount of heat the earth traps has doubled in 15 years, uh, which seems quite startling. Um, we're kind of been riding the exponent of carbon emissions going up. And uh, I think we're, and you're gonna be able to correct me on this, that we, we have more carbon in our atmosphere than some tens of thousands of years prior. Um, so yeah. if you can just kind of expand a little bit on on the earth's, the heat trapping and what's kind of causing that. And um, I'm going to kind of have some more follow-up questions from there.
1: Sure. Um, yes, you're right. The, um, the CO2 level has, uh, has been increasing. We were about 280 parts per million in, uh, the pre-industrial times. And now we're about halfway to, to doubling the pre-industrial CO2 level. We, you know, if we continue as we're going, uh, about 2080 is when we'll reach that uh, doubling mark. And um, so we've seen uh, increase in global temperature of um, about 1.2 degrees centigrade, which I think is about two Fahrenheit. We we work in metric mostly, so it's about two Fahrenheit. And um, one of the things that uh, happens when you add these types of greenhouse gases, which are very long lived um, is you reduce how much thermal emission goes out to space. And so you, you don't really change immediately the amount of absorbed solar radiation, but you do change how much heat the earth sheds to space. So that means you've got more energy coming in than going out and when you heat a system, temperature increases, which is essentially what we're seeing, but it's not that simple. The, the um, initial increase that we experience, um, there are other factors that change, like uh, the most obvious is if you increase temperature, snow and ice um, will melt over the Arctic, um, Antarctic and the ice sheets. And, Uh, glaciers, and we're seeing that, especially the glaciers already. Now, they tend to be very reflective. And so that will change that absorbed solar radiation. Since you're melting snow and ice, you're going to reduce how much energy is reflected to space. So you're going to absorb more energy and further cause an increase in temperature. So that's a feedback. So the initial forcing causes an increase in temperature and then things like snow and ice there's also water vapor so when the air is warmer it can hold more water vapor and water vapor is also a greenhouse gas it's a naturally occurring greenhouse gas it's a very effective and very important one and so that will if you add more water vapor uh, that will increase the greenhouse effect and warm as well Uh, clouds is another thing that will respond to an increase in temperature and so you'll have changes in um, the amount of clouds and the patterns of where clouds are occurring. And since clouds are highly reflective and also impact thermal infrared radiation, that also matters. So so that's kind of the knockoff effects of forcing the uh, system. And what we're measuring is the net radiation over time. So we're looking at sort of the cumulative effect of the forcing and the response through feedbacks. And um, so the record is short. We launched the series instrument in 2000. So we only really have really high quality satellite measurements over 20 years. Um, And um, so, again, that's, that's a short period. And the other thing, when you're looking at a decade or two, in addition to the forcing from things like CO2, There's also internal variability in the climate system. We all are familiar with things like El Niños and La Niñas, which tend to occur on the four to seven year period. But there's other oscillations in the system, like the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which is an El Niño-like oscillation, but occurs on over um, longer timescales. So those have to be factored in, in trying to understand uh, these decade to decade changes. And um, so the result that we found was we we looked at uh, 14 years and um, we found this doubling of the net radiation that's being absorbed. And um, I think the other really important part of this study is that we were able to compare with in situ ocean observation. So let me back up a few steps. So the consequence, well, what happens to the excess energy? So you're adding more energy to the system, you're heating the system, where does that energy go? Well, about 90% of that excess energy that's being absorbed by the planet goes into the ocean as heat storage because oceans are um, very effective at storing heat, the atmosphere doesn't retain heat very well. So only about 2% of that energy is warming the atmosphere, increasing surface temperature. Um, There's a there's another few percent, maybe 3% that's warming. That's being used to melt snow and ice. And then the remainder is is warming the uh, surface over land. So The 90% then that's a big number. So there's a lot of energy that's being taken up by, by the oceans. And when we first started these measurements and started seeing this emerging trend after 20 years, um, as an observationalist, I'm always worried. Is there an artifact? Is our, are the measurements drifting? Is there an issue? Now we have several satellites series with series instruments on, and they were all telling the same story. So that was, Comforting, But what really put a nail in the coffin here was when we compared with the in situ measurements. So given that 90% of this excess energy is taken up by the ocean, then if you measure the ocean heat content and how that changes over time, that should really correlate well with what we're measuring at the top of the atmosphere. And so my colleagues at NOAA, we've been collaborating over the last 10-15 uh, years doing comparisons of year to year variations and publishing the results. But this time, I really wanted to see if they were seeing the trend, the doubling of uh, net radiation that we were seeing in the satellite measurements. And, uh, and so they went ahead, they took these um, measurements, these, it's uh, ocean profile measurements, they're autonomous floats. There's about 4,000 autonomous floats throughout the world oceans uh, that take measurements of temperature and salinity as a function of depth in the ocean down to about 2,000 meters. So from that temperature, you could measure the heat content of the ocean, and then the time rate of change of that is directly com- comparable to what we're seeing in the satellite. And so when they got back to me, they were seeing the same thing exactly. I mean, it was astounding how consistent the results were. And, and so that to me, you know, sealed it for me. This is, this is fairly robust, this is a very robust result. Um, and so we then wanted to know, okay, what's driving it? It's always the, what's causing this. And so we used other uh, satellite measurements that the series instrument flies with these um, imagers that um, measure in different spectral bands which you can um, infer things about aerosols and and clouds and surface properties. And so we tried to sort of unscramble what are the impacts of things like clouds, aerosols, um, melting snow and ice individually on the net radiation. And of course we have measurements of greenhouse gases like CO2, methane that we can also uh, look at. What we found was the, certainly the greenhouse gases played an important role. So part of it is definitely anthropogenic. Uh, Changes in surface albedo associated with reductions in particular in sea ice, especially in the Arctic also had a fairly large impact on the net radiation. And then clouds had a huge impact as well. And um, the cloud changes are tied to something uh, that also changed during this period. So you may have heard about the, globe, the so-called global warming hiatus that we had in the uh, in the 2000s, the first decade of the century. People, it was in the media all over the place. Because so basically, the idea was that global mean surface temperature in the 80s and 90s was was uh, increasing fairly rapidly, and then in the 2000s. It was still increasing but at a lesser rate and so climate skeptics were saying well where did global warming go and so they, it got coined the global warming hiatus now the energy uptake didn't stop they were just looking at temperature and temperature when you think about it is one point at the at, at the interface between the atmosphere and the ocean and the surface surface being mostly ocean and so We had a lot of La Nina events in the 2000 period. And when that happens, there's a lot of vertical, um, a lot of the cooler water comes up to the surface. And so that surface temperature of the air would be impacted by that. And so we had this global warming hiatus. The energy uptake didn't really matter because that's the integral of all of the energy. But in 2014, the pattern shifted. So we had kind of a negative phase of the Pacific decadal oscillation, which is essentially a pattern of sea surface temperature over prim, primarily over the Pacific, where in a warm phase, you would have warm sea surface temperatures in the East Pacific, cooler in, in the West Pacific. And we, that switched in 2014. And the sea surface temperature patterns were warm over the Eastern Pacific where you have a lot of marine stratus clouds, which are highly reflective. And so that is part of the story here because we saw this huge uh, cloud pattern change associated with the warming of the Eastern Pacific SSTs. So it's a bit of a complicated mess. It's a bit of um, you have anthropogenic forcing that's certainly playing an important role. But then you have internal variability that's also playing a role and they're kind of coming in phase to cause a perfect storm to, to generate this doubling of the net imbalance. And so that in a, in a very long winded way is, is sort of what's causing this. Now, from the observations alone, I can't say what percentage is anthropogenic and what's internal variability, because as I mentioned, it, it combines everything to do that you need to do a lot of model simulations using sophisticated climate models which I'm starting to do with uh modelers now so that so the work that we published has raised a lot of questions that you know we want answers to as best we can
0: I'm excited to keep following your work um so I uh As a point of just kind of my own personal study and and way of thinking of the world is that I like to spot emergent qualities and emergent trends and try to like build the smallest function that then extrapolates into whatever. Um, And in part of that, I think the concept of a virtuous cycle is is one to kind of use. And in this case, it's if I'm transforming what you're saying into like uh, trying to make it the most atomic way possible, um, is that all of these combined forces of energetic you know, emissions, all of these different changing of the air chemistry of the earth and all of it is creating a virtuous cycle, which is then fueling itself to maintain itself going forward and changing the ocean temperature, which then has an effect on all of the other cascading systems, which then continues to perpetuate and continue it. Is that a, a way of putting it?
1: Well, I, the way I look at it is, um, you know, if 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 you've seen... A good example is you look at the the global mean surface temperature record. I don't know if you're you're familiar with that because it goes back to 1850. We've been taking measurements of surface temperature for a very long time. It's only recently that we've really been taking quality measurements of things like the net radiation, which which is in the paper. So if you look at the global mean surface temperature since 1850, what you're going to find is... um, a long-term trend that you're, that's very obvious, but superimposed on that long-term trend are a lot of fluctuations. Mm. And so the long-term trend is primarily driven by, you know, anthropogenic forcing of the climate system, increasing greenhouse gases, the fluctuations, which tend to be shorter timescales are more those cycles that you're talking about that internal variations in, in the atmosphere and the ocean, that cause a lot of noise. And that's why I say looking at 15 or 20 years, it's a bit more complicated because you've got the forcing, but you've also got this internal variability. Now, if we had you know, 60 years of net radiation measurements, um, we probably would be seeing something much more uh, like the surface temperature record.
0: So it's, it's like a sine wave. It's going up and down and it's, it's very, there's some No, variability. actually,
1: the, the, the long-term trend is, is clear. It's, it's, it's not. It's just sort of a long-term trend. And mm-hmm. then there's a lot of
0: goals, that by that. Yeah, the, the variability. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, much shorter frequency variability superimposed. And so the, the global warming, so-called glo- global warming hiatus is an example of that. Nobody was surprised, really, that that happened because that's, that's kind of what the system does is it fluctuates. But what you really want to look at is the long-term record and the long-term trends. And so my hope is, is our 15 year of doubling of uh, earth's energy imbalance. I'm hoping for all of us that this is um, a big part of that is internal variability and it, it shifts. I mean, we're not going to get rid of the anthropogenic part and that's there. That's, that's going to continue. Um, but yeah because it has consequences having if you're heating the system it does matter because there's symptoms that come with it you know global mean surface temperature is one Um, you're going to melt if you're adding more heat to the system you're going to melt snow and ice so that's going to cause sea level rise Um, the oceans are fluid so if you heat them that also causes um, sea level rise and where i am that's a a big deal. I'm I'm right on the coast, right? Um, What other extreme weather? If you heat the system, yeah, you're going to see more, there's more energy. And so you're going to see more severe weather, droughts, floods that we're seeing right now and out west. And um, so, yeah, so I'm hoping that uh, the next 15 years, the part of this that's internal variability kind of um, mitigates to some extent the part that's anthropogenic. And we won't see um, all of these terrible things I'm talking about. I mean, we will to a certain extent, it's just a matter of what degree.
0: Yeah, the order, the white, which order of magnitude. Um, how how much is the ocean? How much does the ocean play? So the ocean is like, what, 76% of our surface? 7, yeah. About
1: 72, 71,
0: 72%. Okay. Yeah. So it's 70, 70-ish percent of our surface. How much is it responsible for our global weather patterns?
1: Well, it's it's a there's, there's a lot of interaction between the atmosphere and the ocean. It's a coupled system. Hmm. So you, you can't say what percentage is the ocean and what percentage is the atmosphere, you, you know, because there's a lot of exchange of energy mm-hmm. between the, um, you know, the hydrological cycle is essentially... Um, energy that's evaporated from the ocean that goes into the atmosphere and then you have precipitation and so there's this cycle that that of interaction between those two and what fuels that is energy too right the energy that's absorbed from the sun at the surface is used for evaporation so Mm. so that kind of sets the uh sort of it, it sets the match, in a sense, for the thing, for the system to work. So, I, you can't say what part is ocean, and what part is atmosphere. It's, they're coupled.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess that even answers the question in its own right, though, because it's you can't look at. I mean, thing. I think most of us, because we're terrestrial beings, right, uh, think of the uh, Earth and like the the physical land we're on is the reason for the rain or. You know, and and there is like some variability in that. Like, uh, I just moved from San Diego. That's a a great example of a microclimate. And the you know, as you move east towards the mountains, how the mountains play into the different uh, ecotones. Um, but in reality, all of that is largely affected by affected by the atmosphere and the ocean, which we've most recently seen with the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest, right? Because that was mostly yeah. caused from a, an oceanic heat dome effect, right? Right. Um, if this trend continues, how, and this, you know, uh, heating continues and as energy uh, continues and the trapping of more, um, how much, well, I don't know the degree you're going to be able to answer this, but what, it, will our climate fundamentally look different? Like, will the climate of certain areas, like the Pacific Northwest, fundamentally look different than it does now? And is that going to be an effect that is felt largely across the whole of the, the marble? Or do we not even
1: know? Um, Well, to say what one region, how one region is going to look does depend on a number of factors. And um, I I can't say what, you know, what Oregon is going to look like or Washington is going to look like. But are they going to be affected
0: by it? That's more more what I mean
1: by that. Yeah, certainly. I I think the, the easiest way to think about these, you know, because climate is really kind of statistics of weather, right? And so you've got a distribution of uh, events that happen. And so what you're doing when you're forcing the system and heating the system, you're shifting the distribution. And what you really want, like extreme weather, is really the tails of the distribution. They don't happen frequently, but when they do, they cause a lot of damage, a lot of destruction. And so you could imagine if you have a, um, a, a distribution with a tail and you start to shift the, the mode of that distribution, well, you're gonna see more of the extreme weather that occurs at the tails. And, and that's gonna be true of many places. So potentially more droughts and more floods, those parts of the world that see that kind of weather. You can see hurricanes being more intense. You'll see more cat fives because again, there's just more energy that's being, that's fueling these these events. You'll also see uh, shifts in patterns of the weather because the general circulation is going to respond as well to having more heat in the system. And so you could have places that were more arid become more rainy all of a sudden. Um, Part of the regional prediction is, is tricky. So here again, we have to rely on climate models um, to tell us locally what's, what's likely to happen um, from the observations, which is really where, I'm, where I live is observations world. Um, we can't really say, you know, how things will change. We have mm-hmm. to turn to, to climate models.
0: Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um is the rate of change that we're experiencing out of the norm of what we've known historically, or I mean, I guess history is a terrible term, uh, geologically, like is the pace in which this change happening?
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly the, the last 100 years um, are unprecedented in terms of the amount of change. So prior to having anthropogenic forcing, um, changes in climate were much more gradual and we're you know, time scales more of tens of thousands of years associated with how the Earth moves around the Sun, you know, the orbit. Um, but there's no period that, that we know about where we had so much change in like a hundred, hundred fifty 150 year period that that's definitely. So the acceleration is is there. And the other thing were the early results we're finding, from the um, work we're doing with the models that follow this study, and it's very preliminary, so I, don't, I probably even shouldn't mention it, but I, I will. But the sense I'm getting is um, if you run climate models for like many what they call ensemble members, you initialize them in different ways and you run thousands of simulations and over hundreds of years with forcing, you then ask the question, statistically is the 14 year period that we studied in this um, paper, where does it lie when you look at the distribution of many, many simulations? And the interesting result we're finding, again, preliminary is that the models tend to underestimate what we're finding. So the, um, very rarely do we find 20-year uh, periods, say, or 14-year periods in the model simulations where the trend in the net radiation or Earth's energy imbalance is as large as what we observed. And so that's, that's an interesting result. Um, and we haven't dug into why that is, but that's sort of what we're finding so far. But again, it's it's preliminary. But that's the kind of thing you want to do, is you want to take these observations, and if you have a surprising result that's robust from observation, then you ask the question, do the models, um, does the modeling world replicate what we're observing? And if not, why? What is it about the model that, that isn't, isn't working right, for example? And that's how we learn. We, we learn from you know seeing differences and then um, there's a community that does model development and they improve the models and then we make you know sort of slowly steps forward.
0: I'm going to ask you to take a, a sidestep question and could you explain what a climate model is?
1: So, a climate model I mean, people are familiar with weather models, right? People, our um, forecasts are forecast or generated by these numerical models, um, which are um, a bunch of equations, a bunch of complicated equations that. Uh, represent the physics of the atmosphere, the oceans, land, and the cryosphere. So all of the fluids, the flows of fluids are represented in these models. And so that's what essentially we rely on for our weather forecasts. Um, the models that are climate models are similar to that, but they're, um, they're a little bit different in some ways. Now they, they have to worry more about um, the longer term, which ironically is a little bit easier to predict, to project forward than weather. Weather is very difficult over, let's say, two weeks. It's, it's a very difficult thing to do. But um, when you average enough time, uh, things actually ironically get simpler. And so the models are going to have to be fed the forcing scenario, the projections of how much CO2 uh, is gonna be at in the atmosphere, how much other gases are in there. And so they represent the physics of the atmosphere, the physics, like I mentioned, all of the physics that, that are taking place. And they're not necessarily meant to predict this decade. They're meant to predict sort of projects forward. So if you said, if, if we uh, continue as business as usual in terms of how much CO2 we're emitting into the atmosphere, the models are gonna project um, where we're gonna be when we double CO2. And so there's many of these models all over the world. The US certainly has uh, a few, Europe, Japan, China, they're all over. And so these different models are all running projections of um, forcing from things like CO2. And then they're all comparing against one another to see how consistent they are for a given scenario, forcing scenario. And so what we're finding is that, um, so I mentioned we've warmed already 1.2 degrees Celsius. Um, We're about halfway in terms of doubling CO2. And once we do double CO2, which is really one of the experiments they run is, is, uh, what is the mean temperature of the earth or what is the increase in temperature of the earth at the doubling of CO2. And they're projecting uh, about three degrees Celsius from where we are 1.2, but there is some spread about that. the the 95% confidence is about two to four and a half degrees, which is a large range. When you consider the last ice age, the temperature was in the other direction, five degrees cooler. So here we're talking up to four to four and a half degrees warmer, which which is a big number. Hopefully we hopefully we won't see that. Um, and so part of our job is to reduce that uncertainty. Um, and that's one of the other things our observations are being used for. So the I mentioned clouds earlier. They are one of the big reasons why there's such a big spread, two and a half to Four and a half degree or two to four and a half degree spread in what they're calling what's called climate sensitivity, which is the temperature doubling CO2. Clouds are very difficult. They're very important in terms of the energy budget of the planet, but they're very difficult because you have to resolve scales that range from microns to, you know, thousands of kilometers. And um, so that's where we struggle. That's where we really have to do a lot of work to, to narrow the uncertainty. Um, and so that's it's a it's an interplay between observations being able to use the observations in clever ways, um, make field campaigns where you can measure a fine scale, um, and then you know compare the models against each other. And, and so we've been you know making progress, um, but it's it, it's pretty hard. <laughs> it's, yeah, <laughs> but three degrees is about where we think. We're going to be when we double CO two, likely around 2080. That's our best sort of the consensus sort of uh, result that we're thinking.
0: Which I, I Leonardo DiCaprio like shortly one, before we were recording this uh, made an Instagram post that went viral that was talking about one and a half two degrees and three degree three and a half degrees what that would actually mean. Um, it's quite startling, mostly because of the unknown unknowns of what that would mean. Um, how much of our current like climatic understanding of, of our the way our air chemistry is changing in regards to carbon and other greenhouse gas emissions takes into account um, the anthropogenic causes. So like the, the human causes of this from all of our like emissions and, and how much is also because of the cycle that, that creates for things such as the permafrost and that melting and releasing more carbon and other locked gases.
1: Well, that's part of it. That's all part. That's all included in these simulations okay. um, as well as the feedbacks that, that take place. Right. That's again, without the feedbacks, um, the warming wouldn't be as dramatic if it was just sort of uh, increasing greenhouse gases. We, we would see uh, a few degrees warming. It's really these feedbacks that that are exacerbating the warming. It's the changes, the response of the system. Um, so it's what we call positive feedbacks. So I mentioned a few: the snow and ice, the water vapor, and, and clouds in particular. So the permafrost is is certainly part of that uh, forcing and response as well. So because you know, you increase temperature, you melt more, you emit more and the cycle continues, the feedback, sort of feedback cycle continues.
0: Yeah, uh, I was talking to uh, Dr. Heiko Balzer. He's at the University of Leicester. He does a lot of uh, satellite work and satellite imagery work, mostly on like forests and and what's happening there. Um, And I mentioned this to him, but the permafrost melting is something that has kept me up at night sometimes once I learned about that a few years ago, because of exactly what you're saying of the feedback cycle that that brings and, and just the unlocking of more carbon and then uh, the kind of uh, existential conundrum that that brings. Um, so the past 150 years versus now, there's definitely been an increase. Is the pace of the increase projecting going forward increasing as well? Because something I think about a lot in both like, uh, socially with our use of technology as well as the way we're kind of uh, approaching the, the real Anthropocene here is kind of riding the exponent. Like things, in, in, my, in my eyes, the chaos in, in the system of just reality seems to be going up vertically. Um, is that also the case in this or, or is the emission and pace of all of this starting to increase at a faster pace in this coming decade versus the past 30, 30 years?
1: Well, I think again, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to talk about one decade because again, it, it's it's a uh, it's a short timescale on a clim- in a climate sense, and again, a big part of that is because the oceans operate on much slower timescales than than the atmosphere.
0: Hmm.
1: So so that wh- I wouldn't want to say one decade, like the you know the two thousands, we were we saw a lot of La Niñas, which made things cooler a little bit or less. The increase in temperature was. Reduced. It wasn't cooling, it was just that the warming, the rate of warming had, had been a little bit less. So I wouldn't want to talk about one decade. I think you want to talk more about 30 to 50 years uh, where you start to get above that just cycles of internal variability. Um, and so, yeah, we, we are seeing an acceleration um, in changes in the system. And of course, you know, we're, we're concerned about tipping points where there's um, the feedbacks I talked about kind of take over and there's no, no return. Um, that's scary and that's unknown. I mean, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty there as well as when do you reach a, a tipping point? Um, so again, these are, these are open questions at this point but they're, they're certainly valid questions.
0: You don't have to answer this, and you can totally uh, say that you're not comfortable. Um, but could we possibly have already reached the tipping point that we don't know about?
1: Um, I don't think we have. Um, I think I, I think we still have time, and people who you know study this a lot more than I do are talking about. 10, 20 years for various reasons, and, and there's again, it's a lot of debate amongst climate scientists about those types of questions. So personally, I don't think we have, and I, I would wouldn't want to say it's going to be 20 or 30 years. I think it's a very difficult answer, question to answer. And again, we have to we have to rely on models. You can't just extrapolate observations and say there you go, there's the answer because it's just it doesn't make, uh, to me, that doesn't make sense. It's not that simple.
0: Okay, I like that little bit of hope. I'll take, I'll hold on to that. Um, and the, the part that you mentioned earlier that was really fascinating to me and also kind of speaks to the complexity and the degree of difficulty and even understanding this as uh, a reality, right? Like there's, there's the, the theory of um, you know more carbon in the atmosphere, it's gonna mean heating, but then when you start breaking it down into all the component factors of that, like you were explaining and, and, you know, even struggling to do so because it's so complicated and it's so interdependent and inter- interconnected is, you know, how much of our heat and energy reduction, um, is shut into space. Like that is something that I never would have really considered before that a lot of our earth system, you know, is actually in <laughs> floating in space. And, you know, actually that the radiation leaving the earth versus being trapped there um, kind of also in my eyes, I'm, I'm kind of uh, gonna be unpacking that afterwards is how much we, the layman doesn't understand or it doesn't even know to understand kind of that unknown, unknown of the complexities of this incredibly large system.
1: Right, but any anything that has a temperature emits heat, right? It's just sort of a, a basic, physical law, we, we're emitting heat all the time, which makes why infrared cameras can, can see us. And so the planet's no different. Um, and that balance, that energy balance, um, it, you know, I think it, it, there's a lot of complexity, but there's, there's also a beautiful simplicity to it. It's simply energy in and energy out, right? If you heat the system, the sun is our fuel that drives the climate system. And so we absorb solar radiation, but we shed heat, the planet sheds heat by emitting thermal infrared radiation. And if those two are equal, then, you know, temperature when averaged over a long period won't change. If there, you know, if there's more energy going out than coming in, then temperature is gonna drop or vice versa, temperature will will increase. So that's kind of the simple um, explanation but yeah, under the hood, there's a lot more complexity when you start to look at these feedbacks in particular. And as I mentioned, those are really important um, for actually trying to project how much warming we're gonna see. And you know, the one factor out of these feedbacks that's the most complicated so far is, is really the clouds. We really are struggling with what is the response to doubling CO2 from clouds? And the consensus is that the cloud distribution, there'll be um, less low clouds. And those have a big impact. So the, the cloud cover, the low cloud coverage over the planet um, will decrease, which will mean that essentially more energy is gonna be absorbed because that low clouds, their temperature is similar to what the temperature is at the surface. And so in terms of, thermal emission, they don't have much of an, a radiative effect, but they're bright. And so they reflect a lot of energy. Mm. And so if you start to reduce how much low cloud there is, well, you're going to absorb more energy. And um, that's what the models are showing, but the models are showing fairly large discrepancies in the low cloud feedback, which is really one of the reasons why there's this spread and and two to four and a half degrees warming after doubling CO2, so that's kind of the holy holy grail uh, in climate research right now is understanding the, the cloud response to um, warming.
0: That's fascinating. I've never even heard that anywhere. And I mean, I'm a, I'm a layman, but I spend some nights and weekends uh, looking at this quite intensively, and I, I've I've never come across that. That's quite uh, that's quite fascinating.
1: Um, well, the other the other big uncertainty that well, I mean. These are problems that we're struggling with in the research world that that matter. They're they're all things that affect our ability to project what a given forcing scenario. The other one that we're studying hard is uh, the role of aerosols. So these aerosols are tiny particles suspended in the atmosphere. So dust is an aerosol um, pollution. Those are aerosols. Um, Sea salt, you know, when you have wind over the water, it, it generates salt particles that are suspended in the air. So those particles, a cloud can't form without an aerosol, right? cloud, the water condenses on a particle, and it forms a droplet. And so changes in the abundance of aerosols will impact the clouds as well. And so it's something called aerosol cloud interactions. That's another hot area of research is to understand because one of the things that's happening is we are getting better at cleaning up our atmosphere um, off the US, off of China, over Europe in particular, um, things are cleaning up. Things are getting better. We're switching to cleaner uh, sources of energy. China in particular, I mean, it's it's really bad there, but they're, putting some pretty strict measures, control measures to uh, clean the air up. And so that means you're going to change how much, how many aerosols are, are in the atmosphere and you're going to change types of aerosols that are there. So then you want to know, okay, what is the impact of that on things like clouds? And so that's another big area that people are studying.
0: Wow there's uh, this Socrates quote that I love a lot. I think about it a lot and it's uh, someone asks him what wisdom is and he says, all I know is I know nothing. Um, and that makes me think of what you're saying right now is just how complicated all these things are. Like you fix one thing and it might have unintended consequences and something you like an unknown unknown you didn't know to consider and what the uh, yeah. resulting effects of that would be. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, is there anything other than the, the doubling that you've most recently you know, published that has been quite startling with you when you're looking at this research?
1: Um, well, I, a paper that I wrote that preceded this looked at this um, switch in the Pacific Decadal Oscillation and looked at uh, climate models, how they, rep, whether or not they replicate replicate the change. So after 2014, when the PDO, the Pacific Decadal Oscillation Index, changed sign from cold phase to warm phase. We had, as I mentioned, a lot of warming over the eastern Pacific, which is where the marine stratocumulus clouds, like you're, you're over, Cali- you're in California and you're familiar um, with layer, those low yeah. clouds. Yeah. yeah, it's a marine layer. When you fly into places like San Francisco, you see this beautiful layer of clouds. But those are fairly extensive and again, fairly important to our our energy budget. Um, And so the change in surface temperature, sea surface temperature associated with the flip in sign of the specific decadal oscillation caused in the observations this huge reduction in low cloud and this huge uptake of energy locally And when I first saw that, I thought, Oh my gosh, this is, I mean, it was pretty unprecedented. People were calling it the Marine heat wave. (laughs) You know, it was because it was contributing to warming in California because you reduced how much cloud there was. And it was just all this extra energy that's being absorbed and had an impact. And so um, I wanted to talk to some climate modelers and see if they were able to replicate that response to that, change in sea surface temperature and um, unfortunately the so every um, probably every seven years or so the climate community uh, releases a report called the IPCC the intergovernmental panel on climate change um, I don't know if you're familiar with that yeah IPCC I, re- reports.
0: I read one of those uh, a few years ago that is the reason I stay up at night with the permafrost
1: Yeah, those are great documents. I mean, there's just thousands and thousands of scientists across the spectrum work on these. So they're really, it's just an incredible effort and an incredible resource. Well, um, the modelers end up doing a lot of simulations to support the the analysis that goes in. And um, unfortunately, the model runs ended in 2014, right when, The PDO switch sign and all of these changes were happening. And so I couldn't just grab model results to, to compare with my observations. And so I was at a conference in Germany and, and I I was surrounded by a a number of these different modelers from the U S from different parts of Europe. And so I went around with my laptop, terrorizing them with images of, of what we were seeing in the observations. And and said, so do you think your model reproduces this? And they were like, oh, I don't know. That's a good question. Now, the problem is they had, they, they had to work. They had to run their models for another three or four years in order to answer the question. So I was able to twist about seven groups uh, to do that, seven different, seven of the best climate models in the world. Uh, it took a couple of years because everyone's busy. Um, and so, yeah, I was able to, to compare. And what they did is they, they were given the sea surface temperature and they were running an atmosphere only model. And the, the question was whether the cloud response was consistent with the, with the observations. And the surprising result there was that they, by and large, they were doing the right thing. By and large, um, the models were, were getting it right. The magnitudes were somewhat different in some cases. Some of them, one of the models was way off. I mean, it was looking at a different planet altogether. It was just totally out to lunch, which was a surprise. And, and the group that um, that represented that model weren't weren't very happy <laughs> about those results. But uh, the U.S. models did very well and replicated the results. So that gave everybody hope that you know the models aren't completely out to lunch. There's there are things in there that that they're doing right. And there are things that you know still need work, so that was um i think uh, a fun paper to write because it was finally saying something positive about uh, you know the, the the model world
0: yeah yeah that's got that's gotta be uh feel like feel very nice it's like a little bit of satisfaction and uh, delight but um It's just like an anecdotal point. Like, um, I used to live in San Diego, and I, in the places I lived while I was out there for uh, several years, I lived in just if anyone is listening knows it is North Park, which is like just north of Balboa Park. It's like on top of a quite uh, elevated place. And then from there, I went seven miles away and I was living on the coast in Pacific Beach. And in North Park, we never got any marine layer. It was never, never, we never got any of the low level clouds in the morning. Um, So, like, you know, from I mean, mere minutes after the sun rose, it would be blazing hot and it would there'd be no reprieve, no clouds, no nothing. Um, and then when I moved just down the road to Pacific Beach and along the coast, every morning was chilly, like very chilly. Yeah. And then there was, you know, like an hour, sometimes an hour, hour and a half of when this marine layer is getting burned off uh, from the sun rising. Um, and it was startling to me, like how different the, the two different climates in that microclimate are, but if you're extrapolating that across an entire coastline or uh, across a much larger area, um, I could definitely see how that could contribute to, you know, kind of a an effect on the whole system. And um, it once again kind of goes into play of just how much there is to consider in this upcoming I don't, I don't even know how to put a timetable on it, but just the upcoming events that will be happening over the, the next course of time um is it's always interesting how much, how much is happening in regards to all of this um, and how much is really shifting. Um, yeah, well, thank you for your research and your work. I mean, this is, this is really fascinating. Um, I hope more people are you know, starting to kind of getting their eyes on this type of stuff and understanding really what this all kind of means and contends with um, because you know, if we like it or not, this is definitely what's gonna be affecting us for the rest of our lives, regardless of where we are. Um, and I think it's only gonna bring more conundrums in the future.
1: Yeah, well, I hope, uh, Hope certainly hope that uh, things do turn around and, um, you know, the doomsday scenarios don't come to pass, I'm, you know. Uh, but...
0: Yeah, well, we, I think we'll see. Um, I, I have, as like a, a point of philosophy, I try not to generate hope, because it's like a passive act. I try to build faith and and knowing that there are more people out there that are working on things like this and getting the word out. Um, I mean, I thought I know that it was, you know, a very startling st- uh, Research that you did. And I, and I know that that's part of the reason that it got, you know, spread as far as it did, but I did see it everywhere. And even just, you know, preparing for this interview. Again, I, you know, searching your name came up with how many different periodicals, you know, use that so I think it's it's good that people are starting to get this understanding um the the thing that i worry about this is just anecdotal is just how much noise there is in our daily lives and how much there is to consume as far as like from a media and just like state of being i mean we have so many different bills coming due at the same time Um, and then we have all these advances in technology and viruses and everything that's all just kind of coming to a head at the same time like that that is my biggest concern i mean i think that humans have always been quite great at adapting and, and overcoming circumstances, but we need to have a, a shared understanding of what the problem is.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, what um, it, it, to me, the, the, the importance of that study is not just the result. Um, I, I think from an, you know, from an observationalist point of view is, is the robustness of the result. Mm-hmm. that two very independent ways of, of measuring gave the exact same result. And um, that to me is, is, is important because um, if our observing system is telling us different stories, depending on, you know, what approach we use, what instrument we use, that just causes a lot of confusion, a lot of noise and a lot of wiggle room for pretending there's no issue. Um, so that's an important part. I, I think having uh, a sound, robust observing system where it's you know there's no question that this is happening. You know, it, it puts the onus on us to to really look at this as uh, as something real. So that was for me the biggest sort of you know the the fact that it doubled was was alarming. Um, and I think again, I you know. I'm hoping that a big part of that was internal variability and it can turn around in the next 15 years. Um, What keeps me up at night um, is that we're, you know, is is making sure we maintain these observations over multiple decades so that we can have a better sense of what's actually going on and it's it's not always a given these these programs are expensive. these instruments are expensive. Um, and so, you know, I hope that we continue these I'm certainly um, trying to make sure that we do and do everything I can but uh, it's it's not like just measuring uh, temperature at the surface, which you know you can do fairly cheaply and fairly accurately, um, but launching satellites and and doing this in a way that doesn't keep changing. You know, you you can't change the rural or midstream because then you won't be able to measure, you won't be able to unscramble whether you're looking at changes in the climate system or because you changed instrumentations. So there's a lot of um, details that need to be considered to properly observe the climate system because we are looking at subtle changes over time. So those are the things um, that keep me up at night that are you know, related to my job. Of course, things like what you mentioned keep you up at night also keep, keep me up at night. So it's a wonder I sleep at all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, hopefully all the squash is a, has some part to do yeah. with it. <laughs> yeah. um, well, that, I'm, I'm glad that you made that point because um, I hope that more people start uh, getting active. I, I I I try to look at everything as as neither good nor bad. And I think if I'm looking at COVID and kind of the last 18 months of what that has looked like, um, I think one of the things is that we have more people that are fixed in their echo chambers, but we also have more people that are now observing more and questioning more and and wanting to know more and and getting more engaged. Um, So I hope as a proxy of that, uh, things like this do get more research Um, Mm because kind of like, you know, back to my unknown unknowns, (laughs) um is that if we don't even know and we're not measuring and we're not you know actively trying to understand more then there's going to be more that's going to blindside us um right and in something as large as this and complex as this and uh how much something like a changing climate would affect us um i think it's, it's quite important um like there was just an article i was reading yesterday about the changing in our forests and how much, you know, drought in the West and, and different shifting, you know, heat and things like that are leading to um, more problems like, um, you know, species like trees and things like that, <laughs> like, they don't change as quickly as where, you know, the earth is changing and, and what that's all going to lead to. Um, but the more that we understand it, and the more that we kind of have that shared measurement and understanding, uh, you know, you can't, you can't make any, any action without understanding what you're, you're trying to solve for and understanding right. what you're dealing with.
1: Yeah, and that so another point you didn't raise that that comes up every once in a while um, is this whole idea of geoengineering. I don't know how familiar you are with that. Uh, Some people that are taking that very seriously, um, and um, yeah, that the, the scientific community, the bulk of the scientific community, when they are faced with these engineering solutions. Um, it's exactly what you're saying. It's the unknown unknowns. What are the unintended consequences of doing some of these things that can cause more harm than good, um, and even their effectiveness is in question. So you, you, you know, they it could be that they're not effective at all, and they're causing other unintended consequences. Which, so, uh, I, but there are people <laughs> that are very serious about this. Engineering thing scary
0: it is scary and i i try my best to not dismiss anything wholeheartedly but whenever i come across like some ideas in that realm i'm always just like ah, god i feel like there's so much more that we're not considering like i don't know how frequently they do it but i know in D- dubai i believe it's sodium nitrate that they are not sodium silver nitrate that they inject in the, into the atmosphere to cloud seed to create it to to rain um, and doing things like that like you know it's very futuristic and, and i think us as a species have a hardwiring for novelty, so I think it's very cool, and you know that definitely sometimes I think can emotionally lead us astray. Um, so I, I think it's really cool if I'm thinking from it, you know, just like kind of a, a base novelty and delightful reaction. But in my mind, uh, that seems awfully scary in what we're actually could possibly be doing it, especially if we start doing that at scale. Um, to your, to exactly what you're saying, I, I think that. We really need to be understanding more because I mean like there was some understanding like there's a news article or news like clip that um I came across when I was doing some research of I think it was in the late 1800s or early 1900s that was postulating the idea of putting more carbon in the atmosphere could potentially raise the you know the, the global atmospheric temperature um and and I wonder if how many of those things that we're not thinking about right like I, I worry more about what we're not thinking about when we do things than what we are thinking about or what our intent is right yeah Yeah. like the road to perdition is paved with good intentions right that's something i think about a lot Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, all right well this was very fascinating and stimulating i really appreciate your time and i'm going to be looking a lot at clouds after we get off the phone uh is there anything else that you want to mention while i still had you
1: no i think i think we covered uh covered it well good job
0: ah thank you very much i appreciate that